Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to an extra special episode of the Classical Music Pod. We're here in South London's green-tiled beauty Stanley Halls to bring you a live Christmas special. There are plenty of festive treats beneath our spoken word tree. We'll be unwrapping bundles of trivia about Tchaikovsky's ballet, The Nutcracker. Reaching into our stockings to bring you everything you need to know about Duke Ellington's spin on the hit ballet. And placing a new star atop the branches of received classical music history's tree. The hyperperceptive amongst you may have noticed a fleeting appearance of an endangered species already today. I didn't think you were bringing your pet pangolin, Sam. No, Zanakis is staying at home. I was referring to something under even greater threat. Live music. What? Being performed by real-life musicians? Absolutely. I'm very proud to introduce the classical pop-ups band who are with us this evening. What a lot of appreciation they're giving themselves. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, about that. We're recording on a Wednesday evening, and up until Monday afternoon, the plan was to have this room filled, if not to the brim, then at least to a healthy decibel level with a live audience. So in the interest of safety, we'll be using some of our favourite canned applause and laughter. And making ample use of people we are allowed to have in the room to tell the ripping musical yarn we've got for you today. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. I think it's time to talk Tchaikovsky. Today, we're giving centre stage to the best ballet ever written about a decorative food preparation utensil. Our story begins not in the kitchen, though. Not even in 1892, when Petter's Nutcracker received its premiere in the Marinsky Theatre, St. Petersburg. No, instead, we must travel past several Christmases past to 1816, a year recorded as the Year Without Summer due to a massive volcanic eruption basically blocking out the sun and causing a massive crop failure. Are we just trying to make ourselves feel better about 2020? No, no. Well, actually, yes. Broadly trying to make everyone feel better. Thank you. <laughs> that was weak. Come <laughs> on. One more. <gasps> Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's better. 1816 is the year E.T.A. Hoffman wrote a slightly dark fairy tale called The Nutcracker and the Mouse King. E.T.A. Hoffman, no relation of Dustin, as far as we can tell, wrote many short, dark fairy tales for children. Like Roald Dahl of the early 19th century, if Roald Dahl hadn't been a fighter pilot and instead had been uh, rather an accomplished composer, music critic, artist, and law expert. And been German. And had an acronym for a first name. Other than that, just like Roald. Oh, crikey, it's the trivia alarm. Played for us very fetchingly on the trombone by Barney. It means we've got to have some slightly tragic solo cracker cracking. Everyone in the hall should have found a numbered cracker on their chair as they came in. Contained within each one is a vital nugget of trivia, as well as a party hat and the usual cracker joke. What is the first number, Tim? First up is number 16, as in 1816. Who's got number 16? It's Barney! Oh, it's Fantastic. Barney, can you pull it and tell us what the trivia is? Yeah. Oh, feet of strength. Good pull. of the E.T.A. Hoffman short story, The Sandman, that was going to star shirt-phobic rock icon Iggy Pop. But it fell through, and Iggy Pop ended up doing car insurance adverts. Round of applause for Barney! Very good, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Lots of people were inspired by Hoffman's stories. There's Offenbach's slightly naff opera, The Tales of Hoffman, Schumann's eight-movement piano work, Chrysleriana, I don't think I'm saying it right. That's okay. That's okay. Based on the character Chrysler and Hoffmanadia, a rather endearing 2018 stop-motion film. Hoffman's version of the Nutcracker story will be mostly familiar to anyone who has seen the ballet. But here's a synopsis for anybody who hasn't. Set to the tune of a familiar public domain carol. Him through the night, magic fills. 
fills the silence, evil mice appear in sight, bringing with them violence. Clara and her toys defend themselves, beating back the vermin. Clara falls and cuts herself. Ooh, I bet that's hurting. In the morn she tells her fam, but they call her liar. All except the kind old man, Mr. Drosselmeyer. He sits Fritz and Clara down, tells them both the tale of a mouse with seven crowns and a princess's betrayal. It went. There was a king who liked his food, he liked his sausages barbecued, but sausage disappeared from his house, was stolen by a naughty mouse. King was so angry he cooked up a plan. Mouse traps in all the garbage cans. The mouse's children, they all got whacked, were caught in traps as they looked for snacks. So mouse, distraught for her dead offspring, did plan revenge on the nasty king. She cast a spell on his daughter. The royals turned to Drosselmeyer to save the princess whose need was dire. The key was in her horoscope. Two things required a nut and a bloke. They found a magical nut in a cave. Plus, his nephew who'd never been shaved. If you can crack this nut for me, then I'll agree to marry thee. I'll lift this curse for you, my princess. And that's how Drosselmeyer's nephew became the Nutcracker. Back to Fritz and Clara. Now, Sam, as much as I enjoyed that section about the princess, the nephew, and the magical nut, I don't remember that particular section from the ballet. You're absolutely right, Tim. You haven't misremembered anything. That section entitled The Tale of the Hard Nut, in Hoffman's version, is completely excised from the ballet, and we just get the journey to the lovely land of sweets. And why is that? Well, the version that Tchaikovsky began to adapt was a slight rewrite. And it was rewritten by whom? None other than the Gallic gallivanter Alexandra Dumas. As in the one who wrote The Three Musketeers. Exactly that one. As in the son of Europe's first black general. The very same. As in the father of Alexandre Dumas II, also an author who wrote La Dame aux Camelets, which would go on to be the basis for Verdi's La Traviata. Thank you. It was Dumas' adaptation of Hoffman that was then adapted by Tchaikovsky. And I think it might be time to hear some of what they came up with. Thank you. 
a great deal about that music to the choreographer and Tchaikovsky's collaborator, Marius Petipa. Yet the power dynamic between Petipa, Petipa, and Tchaikovsky seems to have been a little asymmetrical. Petipa wielded more power than we might have expected for a choreographer. He gave the composer instructions on tempi and number of bars for each movement, and even cast his future son-in-law as the handsome prince. Actually, quite a lot of the casting seems odd by today's standards. Unlike many modern productions, they had real children playing the children. But then there's Pavel Gert, who played the also handsome Prince Cockalouche. And what was the problem with Pavel, Sam? Well, if you asked him, he insisted that he was 23 years old. But he would actually have been 48 when the Nutcracker premiered. It's like casting Martin Clunes as Charles for season four of The Crown. And Timothy Stulkolkin, who played the toy maker Drosselmeyer, was really pushing it, turning in at 63 years young for the original production. Well, surely that's much too old. Oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> oh, no, it isn't. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no, it isn't. We're not doing that. Oh, yes, we are. Oh, you're so game. Thank you. <laughs> Clearly, we have a more vocal and age-inclusive band than we anticipated. Mm, excellent. Well, Petipa was one of the key relationships in Tchaikovsky's career. The Nutcracker is the last of the composer's three great ballets, and Petipa played a part in the life of all of them. Mm. Swan Lake was Tchaikovsky's first major success and premiered in 1876. Although Petipa wasn't the original choreographer, his 1895 revival still plays a foundational role in how modern productions stage their versions. But before that, the pair of them had their first joint success working together on Sleeping Beauty in 1889. And it was the success of Sleeping Beauty that led to the commission for the Nutcracker. Mm, in fact, it's a double commission designed to be performed in tandem. The Nutcracker is only half of the night. First up, before the interval, would come the opera Iolanta, Iolanta. Which has had, shall we say, less of a cultural impact. Despite being Tchaikovsky's last opera and a perfectly nice bit of music based on a Danish play, it hasn't had the same kind of pickup, no. But at the same time, it didn't seem obvious that the Nutcracker was going to be a success. Here's an account of one contemporary critic read for us by classical pop-ups percussionist Karen. demands made of a ballet. For the woman dancer, there's very little in it, and for the artistic fate of our nation, it is yet one more step downwards. Withering. And here's some more read by Toby on the trumpet. Brutal. Little did the critics then know what a phenomenon this ballet would become. But some of those criticisms do still hold true. I agree the second half of the show does feel a bit like a candy shop-themed cabaret night with different acts coming on for their five minutes of fame. The grand pas de deux, or big dance duet, wouldn't have been seen until way after midnight because of the hour and a half of opera about Danish princesses that acted as an aperitif. Yet the Nutcracker has endured and its popularity has only grown. And that's probably down to the fact that it's full to the Nutcracking gills with banging tunes. Here's another of those bangers, the Trepak or Russian dance. <laughs> That's not a new ending to the piece. It's time for more trivia in cracker form. Who's got cracker number 92? As in 1892, the premiere of the Nutcracker. All right. Toby. Toby, give us a crack. 
Get the hat on. Get the hat on. Yeah, yeah that's it. Good to see the yellow hat. Brilliant. Despite sharing a birthday, Brahms and Chike didn't seem to overlap much in their Venn diagram of musical inclinations. Tchaikovsky called the German a conceited mediocrity and a giftless bastard. And Brahms is rumoured to have been heard snoring through a performance of Tchaikovsky's symphonies. But the good news is they ended up drinking buddies. And speaking of drink... We've had a special donation for this episode. That's rather nice. Yeah, the Philharmonia have launched a gin. Of course they have. And rather than being uh, a bar behind, they're now behind the bar. <laughs> Just my opinion, that's the worst gag in the show, I think. <laughs> I'm inclined to agree. <laughs> but it comes with a bit of good news. We're about to give away a bottle. Whoa. Can number three please open that cracker? It's number yes! <laughs> That's right, you've won the bottle of gin! Yay! Okay. Big round of applause for the random assignation of trinkets! <laughs> All right, let's listen to one more bit of Tchaikovsky as we sip these delicious G&Ts down. Now, Sam, you promised us some Duke Ellington this evening. I most certainly did, and we'll be getting to the jazz nobility shortly. But first, I think it's time for us to get to know these guys from classical pop-ups a bit better. Perhaps with a quiz show-style format. I think that sounds wholly appropriate. Sally is here playing violin tonight. Hello. Could you tell us a bit about classical pop-ups? Where do you pop up? And indeed, the kind of music we might hear you popping. I certainly can. It's very, very nice to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, so, I started Classical Pop-Ups back in 2016, so a few years ago, and we kind of pop up wherever you would like us to pop up, weather <laughs> permitting. Now, the format we've got here this evening, we've got a very classic lineup. I think you'll agree, string trio, trumpet, trombone, and percussion. Mm. And we've kind of taken this on as a little format, it's working very well, I hope you agree. <laughs> and We've been working a lot in this way over the summer, lots of locations across South London, really anywhere. I think the weirdest place we've done a gig is in the back of a car. I once got a trumpet player and a bassoonist in the back of a car as part of a promotion for Mazda. <laughs> and um, yeah, they had a great time. 
Fab. Well, I, it's time to divide this bespoke chamber ensemble in half. On one side, we'll have the brass and percussion, and on the other, we'll have the strings. As per The Apprentice, we'll be assigning you team names that sound like they really should mean something of great portent, but are actually just sort of synonyms for claptrap. To my right, we've got Team Fiddle Faddle, let's say. Good to hear the late 16th century term for talking nonsense cropping up in 2020. Mm. On Team Fiddle Faddle is Sally on violin, Naomi on cello, and rounding things out on the viola, George. To our left, we have Karen on and her percussion menagerie, Barney on trombone, and as an alliterative coder, Toby on trumpet. For one night only, they have become Team Acamaracus. Question one goes to Team Fiddle Faddle, and we're kicking off with Nutcracker trivia. Which of the following does not appear in the Nutcracker? Chinese dance, Arabian dance, Indian dance, moon dance. That's the correct answer. Moon Dance is just Van Morrison's thinly veiled allusion to sneaking out for a little bit of nighttime alfresco coitus. Question two is for Team Akamarakis. What percentage of the San Francisco Opera's annual ticket revenue is generated by performances of The Nutcracker? We will accept an answer to the nearest 10%. Oh, you're really close. It's 40% of their annual ticket revenues mm. are the Nutcracker. That is crazy, isn't it? Team Fiddlefell, in the 2018 film adaptation of The Nutcracker and the Four Realms, which butter-voiced acting deity played the godfather Drosselmeyer? Is he still alive? Yes. Jeremy Irons is a lovely answer. It's wrong. Oh. <laughs> the answer is Morgan Freeman. Oh. I can't believe you haven't watched it. Yeah. Tragedy. Team Akamarakis, in which year did the film Barbie and the Nutcracker get its straight-to-DVD release? Is it 1989, 2001, 2013, or 2020? That's 2001 is the right answer, Barney. Mm. Straight in there. <laughs> <laughs> wow. My were, man. You, were you contributing to the $150 million of total sales revenue? Because that is good knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> Team Fiddle Faddle, a 50 50 choice for you on our final question. Did my granny or Tim's granny dance in, the Sadler's well, in a Sadler's Wells production of The Nutcracker? Sally. I'm strictly guessing Tim's granny. It was my granny. Hey. Pauline Clayden. Google her. <laughs> <laughs> Winning question for Team Akamarakis. What role did my granny dance? Clara, the sugar pump fairy, Drosselmeyer, or Snowflake Six? <laughs> it's, it's, a <laughs> it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one. General knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is the sugar pump fairy. Uh, well, um, it, let's call that a draw. Congratulations to everybody. <laughs> well, we're going to hear some more from the classical pop-up players in just a second. Uh, I'm going to point you towards their website, www.classicalpopups.com, for more info about what they're up to in 2021. And now here's our first bit of jazz for the evening, a track synonymous with Duke Ellington and his orchestra, Take the A-Train.
right, Sam, I really enjoyed that. But what's the link between Tchaikovsky and Duke Ellington? Surely it can't just be dapper moustaches. You know, Tim, it does run a little deeper than that. 60 years ago, this Christmas tide, Duke Ellington and his orchestra released a brilliant record, The Nutcracker Suite, a series of swinging arrangements of the music from the ballet. Running at a little over half an hour, it's a genre-redefying gem, demonstrating Ellington's well-known saying that there's only two kinds of music, good music and bad music. I prepared a little something that might fit the latter category that should help fill any holes in people's knowledge of the Duke. This is the 12 facts of Duke Ellington. through all 12 verses, so I we're agree. just going to skip right to the end and get it done with. Time for some more trivia. Judging by the prevailing wind, I'd say it's time for Kraken number seven. Oh! You are right to say, ooh, classical pop-up players, and not just because we are holding up a sign instructing you to do so. We are capable of independent thoughts. Oh, no, you're not. Oh, oh yes, we are. are. Of course you are, and crucially, so is Billy Strayhorn. He's the reason we really wanted to tell you this whole story. Unlike Tchaikovsky and Ellington, about whom quite a lot is known and who have both broken into the general cultural zeitgeist, Billy Strayhorn's name is unfortunately a little too apt similar to those almost onomatopoeic Dickens characters like Wockford Squeers who hits people or Duke Ellington's piano teacher, Marietta Clinkscales, Strayhorn's name is descriptive of his legacy. He is a musical voice that we have allowed to become a little bit lost in history. So, for instance, that brilliant, dazzling track we heard earlier. My song about the facts. I actually meant Take the A Train. Ah, yes. It's basically Duke Ellington's theme tune. It's intertwined with him and his oeuvre. Quincy Jones called it the Holy Grail in terms of songwriting. It's probably the first thing people think of if you ask them to name a track by Ellington. Yeah. It's written by Billy Strayhorn. Ooh. Yeah. Due to a dispute over radio broadcast rights, Ellington needed a whole lot of music fast. And although Strayhorn had been contributing to the band for a while, he suddenly got his big break to write a lot of original songs and fresh arrangements for the orchestra. How did he become connected with Ellington in the first place? Well, this is a good story. Billy Strayhorn is this classical piano-playing, Chopin-loving kid from Pittsburgh. He grew up playing his grandma's piano when he was sent there because his mama wanted to get him away from his unpleasant dad. As he's finishing high school, he works selling soda and ice cream during the day and then writes songs and shows with his pals in the evening. One day, Duke and his band come to town and Billy goes and watches the show. Afterwards, he collars Ellington and says, that's a great arrangement, but here's how I'd have done it. Oh, and by the way, listen to a couple of these original songs I've put together. That's the apocryphal version anyway, but it seems Ellington hired him on the spot, even though there wasn't an obvious job for him to do. Strayhorn was assigned the token role of lyricist, because Ellington saw such potential in this little lad. Little lad? Yeah, he was dinky, unselfish and quiet. The band used to call him Sweet Pea. And it's this Sweet Pea who is on the album cover. Exactly. Gradually, he became more and more influential in how Ellington tracks were orchestrated, and it seems pretty likely that of the nine movements on the Nutcracker Suite, seven are almost exclusively Strayhorn's work. The other two are less clear. So what is Billy doing in the process of this adaptation? In his arrangement, Strayhorn does three things to a greater or lesser extent. Perhaps this would be clearer if we used a Dumas reference. Strayhorn's Three Musketeers, Variables Number One. He can decorate or change the emphasis of the original Tchaikovsky melody. Number two. He can alter the mood or affect of the movement, making something cheery into something dreary. And number three. He can alter structural elements. 
That sounds jolly reasonable. Have you got any examples or evidence for your theory, Sam, or should we take you at your word and knock off early for a gin? Tempting though that sounds, I've actually got some evidence to support my three-tiered system. Not very 2020, that. For musketeer number one, Porthos, it's all surface. The changing of the superficial melodic figures. In The Waltz of the Flowers, Tchaikovsky writes this familiar figure. Billy doesn't change that much in his version, the dance of the Floriadors. It's really an alteration of rhythm and meter that create this brassy riff. that's a relatively simple change. He hasn't pulled the variation lever very far. Musketeer Porthos has only ventured as far as seducing a nun in the grounds of a convent. However, when arranging the Russian dance Trepak that we heard earlier, soundtrack to the 1989 Game Boy version of Tetris, Strayhorn takes the same idea a bit further. In this second example of melodic rebuilding, there is a bit more disguise on the figure with a cheeky swoop up to that first high note of each phrase, rhythmic simplification, and absent chunks of the melody, creating a skeletal swinging version of the original. Can you hear all the missing notes? There we go. So in that one, he's gone further. Porthos has left France, sailed the channel, and is dueling a duke in Hampton Court. Nice. In the overture, Strayhorn keeps the original melody almost identical, except for a bit of rhythmic re-emphasis, but has added a fresh counter-melody in the trumpet line. It's still an aspect of Musketeer number one, melodic reinvention, but it's in its most advanced form. Here it is without the counter-melody. Let's hear that amazing counter melody. Sometimes Bill was known to add counter-melodies that deliberately altered or undermined the mood of the main tune. Is that something that happens in the Nutcracker Suite? Well, not a whole lot. He's more prone to switch the mood of a whole movement, which brings us to Musketeer number two, Athos, the moody one. One example of this shift in ambiance is in the Sugar Plum Fairy arrangement. What does Billy transform it into? Well, his title is the Sugar Rum Cherry, and it all feels a bit more raunchy. Raunchy? Raunchy. Can we hear it? Of course we can. It's got this great drum beat underneath. If you wanted to sing along at home, I find it works very nicely to the words, ooh, I like plums, sugar, sugar them, but each their own. Okay, so, so that rhythm's going on. And then we hear the brass playing this. Thank you. 
raunchy. Raunchy indeed. Mm. Uh, a change in affect. Indeed. Exactly much like someone sneezing maskless on the tube, he quickly and tellingly alters the atmosphere. Part of that change in affect is harmonic as well, adding seventh and ninth harmonies throughout is fine and dandy, but it's the way that Strayhorn voices them that makes the chords feel so fresh, particularly when he stacks fourths. The Star Trek interval. Mm-hmm. A really good fourth sounds like this. If you stack them, you get this kind of chord. And you could call that chordal harmony if you're into Debussy or Schoenberg. Or you could call it the So What chord if you're a Miles Davis fan. But in the sugar rum cherry, it sounds like this. Crucially, because each note is equidistant from each other note, they're all a fourth apart, it creates a very ambiguous hierarchy. No particular note is easy to identify as the root or center. That creates a very different affect to Tchaikovsky's original. But what's nice about musical mood is that even if you change everything, the notes, rhythm, and instrumentation, you can still deliver a comparable ambiance. A similar setting. For instance, in the Arabian dance, or arabesque cookie, Tchaikovsky and the Duke Ellington Strayhorn team both conjure a sense of foreignness. Despite different rhythms, notes, and instruments, the same sense of otherness is generated. A Chinese bamboo flute is used to play the unaccompanied opening, as presumably an Arabian bamboo flute wasn't available for the opening of the arabesque. You've volunteered to play it on your swanny whistle, haven't you? Volunteered is an interesting word. Perhaps, Sally, you could join me for a bit of violin support. I'm so glad you shared that with us, Tim. You truly evoked that otherworldly state, even if your penny whistle wasn't a Chinese flute. That's exactly what Musketeer 2 is all about, how mood can be altered or replicated, irrespective of instrumental resources. Now, it falls to us to think about Musketeer number 3. Aramis, or if we rearrange his name, Musketeer is a ram. Why would we go rearranging like that? Because it's emblematic of how Strayhorn and Ellington rearrange structural elements of some tracks, sometimes in order to squeeze solos in. Rather than going, that's the stuff the original piece starts with, we better start with that, they took a chunk they liked and moved it to the beginning, shuffling the melodic components around like cards in a deck. Have a listen to some structural rearranging here in the toot-toot movement, where the familiar melody from the Dance of the Reeds has been shuttled 16 bars into the new piece. Strayhorn and Ellington choose to start with fragments of tunes that come much later in the original. I expect you'll recognise that famous tune just in time for our excerpt to end. Sam, forgive me for picking you up on this in front of everyone, but I've been thumbing through the book here, and even though it's called The Three Musketeers, there are actually four of them. You're quite right, Tim. So have we integrated D'Artagnan into this overwrought comparison? Of course we have. Just as D'Artagnan contains the best of all the musketeers, so Strayhorn is able to deploy all three of his musical musketeers at once into a total recomposition of a movement. The chinoiserie is a d'artagnaning of Tchaikovsky's Chinese dance, and it contains harmonic and tonal changes, strange alterations to the melodic figures, ostinatos that create a haunting vibe, and a structure that is totally original. It's a full recomposition. Thank you. 
thank you so much to Classical Pop-Ups for their brilliant playing, get them another glass of gin. Mm. <laughs> Sam, do we have any idea about how the two of them, Strayhorn and Ellington, works together? There are some details. Things like Ellington tended to orchestrate instrumental choruses or Strayhorn was thinking more horizontally, creating lines of sound. But perhaps the Duke said it best when he called Bill, my right arm, my left arm, or the eyes in the back of my head, my brain waves in his head, and his in mind. Sounds like a real partnership. And what did they do next? Sadly, it didn't last much longer. By 1964, Strayhorn had been diagnosed with aggressive esophageal cancer, and three years later, he died in the arms of his partner, Bill Grave. His last composition, Blood Count, was written whilst he was in hospital and was recorded on an album by Ellington's band dedicated to Strayhorn called, and his mother called him Bill. The last track on the album, Lotus Blossom, was recorded by accident. As the band were packing up, Ellington played one of Strayhorn's earlier pieces. By chance, the mics were still on, and even though you can hear the departing musicians in the background, it's the most moving track on the record. The Duke can't bring himself to say goodbye, lingering to have one last conversation with his friend. Mm, that little lad he saw the potential in back in Pittsburgh. Yep. Imaginative leaps like that one Ellington took employing Billy Strayhorn as his lyricist are what all of this has been about, seeing the possibilities in people and in things. The team of Ellington and Strayhorn were able to see the future of big bands, stretching what they could do with their paradigm-shifting compositions and arrangements. Taking jazz orchestrations from swinging dance halls to expressionistic art and experimentation. Duke and Little P saw the potential for the Nutcracker score to get a jazz-infused update. And just as Tchaikovsky and Petipa had made the creative bound to turn a story about fighting mice into a ballet... And so, too, how Dumas reinterpreted Hoffman's epic myth into a short story. At its core, in its kernel, when you strip away all the shell and trivial... <laughs> Not now, Barney! <laughs> when you crack the carapace... The story of the Nutcracker and of its reinterpretations is about imagination. The creative impulse we might fire by taking a kid to see the Nutcracker for the first time or by sharing a beloved big band album with them. Whatever challenges are coming down the track in 2021, the people who help solve them will be people with the capacity to imagine. They will be like those three names on the album cover, Tchaikovsky, Ellington and Strayhorn. So the Nutcracker isn't really a story about nuts. It's a story about hope. And that's something we might all need a little bit of right now. So if you get the chance this festive season, bung on a recording of Duke Ellington or seek out a stream of the ballet and give everyone's imagination the rekindling it needs. All that's left for us to do is to say a great big thank you to Stanley Halls for having us and to the Supreme Sally and the Classical Pop-Ups players and to you guys for listening. I've been Sam. And I'm still Tim. Like, subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Instagram with the tag at ClassicalPod. Good night. Good night.